Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I'm your host, Conrad Franz, joined, as always, by Dmitry Kalyagin. This is episode 37 of World War Now, and let me tell you, we have a extremely packed show for you this week. As usual, right as we wrapped recording for the last episode, Lukashenko comes out and starts making crazy statements that totally change the game, change everybody's perspective on the operational and a broader situation on the ground and what the objectives are. We, of course, have... A lot of stuff to talk about in Africa, stuff going on in Israel, France, updates on Strelkov, China, and the U.S.'s conflict heating up. And then they come out with UFO stuff as well to boot. So we have a big show. Dimitri, how are you doing? Doing great, Conrad. And yes, absolutely. Like there's things going on all around the world. And of course, half the African continent, of course, arrives in Russia in order for the, you know, to participate in probably the greatest diplomatical feat we've seen involving the African countries in recent times, right, since since at least 2019, since the beginning of COVID. So, yeah, you know, there's a lot to discuss here, and even updates regarding the church, of course, are absolutely uh, tremendous, I'd say, especially based on this, you know, the beginning of the SMO. A lot of things have changed, but um, definitely. And I guess to start, let's, there's a lot to talk about in regards to Luke, President Lukashenko and Putin basically putting on what I think could be could not be understated the biggest the biggest uh, political show in like a good way they're displaying their power and displaying their confidence in a to the public since the beginning of the year so we are about halfway through or more than halfway through 2023 at this point and we have seen Putin and Lukashenko interact with interact with not just the public and not just the Orthodox public of Russia but just openly walking amongst the people walking among along Saint Petersburg visiting the Holy Valam island monastery in russia's north which essentially is by many considered to be the you know the mount athos of russia and it was established around the same time around 100 150 years after mount athos so very much these good vibes essentially from at the beginning of the week which which we simply just missed out when we did our prior recording yeah, with all the Lukashenko, uh, Putin stuff, we're going to talk about all of that. And there's, of course, Prigozhin stuff to talk about. You know, we may have to, and I, I believe we may have to readjust our winners and losers predictions, not because we were wrong, but because I think we were almost too correct in a certain level. And I think, before we get into that, I think we'll talk about what Lukashenko said. And just, I mean, he, in like two different kind of meetings they had, at one point he comes in and he's talking about how Putin, Putin, these Wagner guys are begging to go on an expedition into Poland. And he then, in that context, brings up Poland supposedly threatening Galicia, which, again, if you remember correctly, Putin said Galicia should have never even been taken by the Russian Empire. Yet here we have Lukashenko saying that uh, Russia and Belarus would go into Ukraine to protect Western Ukrainian territory from Polish aggression, and that, I guess, Wagner would help with that. And then to top all that off, at one point he shows a map to Putin, which he says, this map is where the offensive is prepared, and it's just a map of Poland. So I don't quite, I mean, I have a few ideas, of course, but I'm, I'm interested in where this new kind of saber-rattling with Poland is going to go. Last episode, of course, you know, we mentioned the insane levels of military spending that Poland is undertaking, and the bellicose rhetoric they're engaging with on their border, of course, with the full support of the United States. But, you know, Lukashenko, seen, again, up until now, he's sure they still are the one supporting party on the Russian side of the war due to their, I believe, allowance of certain uh, missile systems to be placed on their border, especially at the beginning of the special military operation. But even recently, Lukashenko has said that we will never do anything preemptively. We will only attack if the borders of Belarus itself are attacked. However, with the escalation of Poland's rhetoric, with some of Ukraine's rhetoric about Belarus, 
the union state has been invoked, which is a whole other kind of entity with which technically Lukashenko is the head. That is this, you know, this this pre-union uh, organization that you know fully integrates the Belarusian you know economy and in some ways even defense structure with Russia. It's you know kind of a interesting thing they have going on despite not being united legally. But yeah, it seems that the the Belarusian, Polish, Ukrainian border, and even like the Lithuanian border and the corridor to Kaliningrad, that is very much in the spotlight right now. That's right. Yeah, the the system that Belarus and Russia essentially are building upon it was established by the you know the Soviet Union essentially, and since the nineteen nineties, especially when Russia went into its weakened state under the Yeltsin and Chubais government, and economically, of course, it went downhill. Its influence over international relations and foreign policy greatly decreased. So the idea of an allied Union state with Belarus, of course, fell, um, even though it was still it was still there. The foundations were there, and the legislation, constitutionally speaking, it could still be called upon. It just wasn't. Um, it just wasn't on anybody's radar for a very, very long time. But of course, Kazakhstan was the previous nation alongside Ukraine to pull out of the Union state sort of post-Soviet agreement, which existed. So, you know, we'll probably bring that up in future episodes when Kazakhstan becomes more of a big deal, because that country still very much has an undetermined political compass. But Belarus definitely, it looks like President Lukashenko has set his eyes upon and a firm alliance of Russia, especially, I think, given the protests of 2019 and, you know, his rhetoric towards Poland. And notice Poland is an important country for Belarus. It's not just uh, the neighbor, which needs to be um, intimidated and, you know, statements need to be made about. No, Belarus is is the country which houses Lukashenko's primary um, political opponent, the, the, the lady that, you know, of course, claims to be the president-elect of Belarus. You know, she was essentially kicked out of Belarus, uh, in 20, I mean, even before 2019, she's the wife of a prominent liberal Belarusian politician who's right now in Belarusian prison. And so the liberal opposition to Belarus is frankly stationed in Poland right next door. And they're essentially just waiting for something to happen to Lukashenko in order to come in and seize power. So any sort of rhetorical statements against Poland, we have to keep in mind, uh, Belarus, uh, you know, Lukashenko is looking out for himself, as he should, because those liberals, they're essentially a Zelensky type of government, which will come into Belarus and essentially transform it into what we see Ukraine as today, a completely degenerate sort of society. They'll bring in, of course, so-called free election. They'll bring in they'll bring in gay marriage, the alphabet communities, um, favorite themes, and it will be transformed uh, and essentially made quite different. And this cultural separation from Russia will be, of course, increased. Speaking of gaps and cultural separation, the uh, what should be noted is Wagner's potential here. But Lukashenko mentions that, you know, Wagner could enter into Western Ukraine in order to, you know, to take over and protect it against Polish invasion, which, again, it's a little bit different to what we saw from the state, from the potential um, uh, military analysts on Twitter and other websites earlier, even Jackson Hinkle, of course, mentioning on YouTube that Wagner's secret plan was to attack North Frugostomel and enter into Kiev again, right? You know, a quick drive. But it looks like Wagner potentially might be even looking at securing the connection between something like Kaliningrad and Belarus, which the connection there is a 65 kilometer straight called the Suwalki Gap, which goes between Belarus to Kaliningrad, that one sort of the old Konigsberg city of Prussia, which Russia now controls since World War II. And the only way this territory can be connected through Russia would be through Belarus and this international corridor going through Poland and Lithuania, two NATO countries. Now, granted, it's only 65 kilometers, which could be trans, you know, could be driven through in about half an hour, you know, 30 minutes time. But 
we've seen Wagner, of course, drive their vehicles at pretty high speeds. So in order to secure that connection, I think Wagner could be used to a high capacity if we're speaking about actual serious palpable effects. Because again, could Wagner enter into Poland and capture some of the key military bases close to the Polish-Belarusian border? Absolutely. But where would they go from there? How would Article 5 of NATO activate? It's simply a little bit unknown at this point. Whereas could Wagner operate a, with complete discretion in Western Western Ukraine if things escalate? Absolutely. So in, in, we could almost see like a pincer maneuver here, Conrad, because on, in the South we see Odessa being bombarded and perhaps something being staged in the future as we discussed with Transnistria and the grain deal being seized. And from the North, of course, there's now this Belarusian Wagner pressure. So in fact, I, I do think there is, it's not just bland rhetoric that we see from Lukashenko and Putin, of course, joking around in front of the mic mentioning, and Putin last, you know, two weeks ago, bringing up the history of Poland and bringing up Stalin and all these historical references, which we had no idea what that was a reference to. And then Lukashenko arrives and gives us the the full-on take, um, which was even more extreme than what Putin was talking about a fortnight ago. And it all kind of makes sense now. Poland is is very much on the radar for Russia. They are aware of what Poland is doing with their military, and they do want to, I suppose, uh, intimidate them to some extent. Many people have said this, that the Polish U.S. Embassy in Poland is kind of becoming like, I believe it was the U.S. Embassy in Honduras was the base of operations for all of the U.S. intelligence black operations that destabilized regimes they found unfriendly throughout Latin America. And in many ways, I think Russia is aware that a lot of, in general, their problems and the, the, the problems with foreign aid and intelligence and with sabotage is coming directly out of the American Embassy in Warsaw. So they're very much aware of all of that. They're obviously very aware of the Baltic countries as well. And you mentioned the Odessa bombardment and everything. And of course, we can, again, at this point, it's it's hopeful. We're hopeful that that is indicative of Russia hoping to push through Nikolaev and Odessa and eventually actually take those territories. And that brings us to the idea that we've heard talk of a possible extra half a million men mobilized in Russia, possibly to also resume operations in Kharkov and other parts of northern eastern Ukraine. So that's obviously on everybody's radar as well. And the Ukrainians are like, they've basically, they've, they've gone like full balls to the wall. They've, I mean, people have said this a lot, but this really seems like it might be their last full mobilization that they can even do. They're on their like 12th mobilization or whatever. And as this begins to fail, I think, again, we mentioned Strelkov's arrest and his September, his detention until September 18th. I think that's an interesting time window to keep looking at because that may be when we see big movement. I mean, it's there's so many mixed takes, I guess, get being given not just by by ourselves, but and other analysts, but also by even the presidents themselves. You know, Lukashenko did mention a peace deal a month ago, like openly said that Russia and Ukraine needed to seek a peace deal sometime in autumn before winter of 2023. And you know, and now he comes out and mentions Poland. And honestly, I'll just I think it needs to be stated that what Lukashenko and Putin spoke about openly into the mic without their ties on was probably not what they discussed behind closed doors. And behind closed doors, they most likely discussed Prigozhin a lot closer, keep in mind. They probably discussed the presence of Wagner, what the actual plans are. Is Lukashenko planning to house Wagner long term? Or is he planning to give them back to Russia? And of course, Putin probably doesn't want them after the humiliating events that occurred on the 24th of June 2023. I think 
Putin and his and his you know, colleagues in the Kremlin are still pretty much upset at Prigozhin that he pulled off this huge PR stunt, which you know I guess we could talk about exactly you know how that the change the perception of who the winners were based on this recent African summit. We can see a lot of Prigozhin in Saint Petersburg, and he seems to have emerged on top. But nevertheless, um, Lukashenko, I think. Uh, we'll see what will the future of Wagner will be, I guess, foothold this year or maybe even in the next few months. Will Wagner be completely dispersed into Africa? Or will they actually be stationed, a portion of them be stationed in Belarus long term? Is uh, Because remember, uh, Lukashenko's attitude towards Wagner was very, very openly negative in 2019 and 2020, when uh, in, in the middle of COVID in July 2020, Lukashenko arrested 33 Wagner soldiers who were on transit through Belarus. So they were simply arrested by Belarusian intelligence and and held detained for you know several days at least. So and of course there is that fear that uh, early Wagner was very much associated perhaps with political assassinations, very covert. You can say like MI6 almost type actions around the world. So there is that fear that well, you know having Wagner in your country is a potential liability. And Lukashenko is a very, very smart politician. He's been around for 30 years, even longer than Putin has. So he's he very much knows how to keep power. And uh, Wagner is a wild card. Does Lukashenko want this wild card long term on his on his territory, on his land? You know, and Prigozhin is a jester. We like he's a he's like the Joker from Batman. You cannot predict what this top J, this top P, I guess, whatever you want to call him, <laughs> will will do. He, he's lied to Putin, he's lied to us through his Telegram posts, he's lied to multiple people, and he's always made it up. And in, in fact, you can always almost say we forgive him for that because it's just part of his image. Like he is this snake, he is the snake that deceived Adam and Eve. And it, it's just very bizarre. And I mean, what can we expect from this like Jewish Vin Diesel when he drives his, Mos drives his tanks at Moscow in this Fast and Furious type scene uh, almost a month ago? Like completely unpredictable character. And yeah, there's more to meets the eye. I think Lukashenko probably discussed Prigozhin very heavily with Putin at this meeting behind closed doors. But again, for the public image, it was mostly a big meme about how Poland may potentially invade Western Ukraine. I think that's more to do with the military side of things, even less to do with Putin and Lukashenko, more to do with Gerasimov Shoigu. It's a military, you know, the Minister of Defense of Belarus, for example. It's more for them to actually calculate and to uh, war game rather even than for Putin and Lukashenko to discuss. But I think, I think politically speaking, this meeting was great. Perhaps we can discuss even the religious side of things because religiously speaking, the image, the public relations, you can call it a PR stunt, but I think it was a genuine expression of orthodox solidarity between the Belarusian people and the Russians in the personified and individualized by their presidents, visiting Valam, visiting the Konstrad, uh, Kronstadt Naval Cathedral in St. Petersburg, these big shows of solidarity. I mean, it's very different to what Putin, what we saw when, after the Prigozhin coup, when Putin visited Dagestan and said, like, the Quran was uh, sacred for all peoples, of course, a sacrilegious statement, and Putin made a huge mistake, but and eventually a huge earthquake hit Dagestan, literally, uh, you know, days later, which, of course, was a sign of God that you shouldn't be making these really mistaken sacrilegious blasphemous statements, especially if you're a head of state, because God is watching. He has granted you power. President Putin, President Lukashenko, you do, you guys need to watch your, I guess, watch your actions and words, especially to a larger audience. A lot of people are influenced by your actions. And so these two presidents visiting these holy sites and even going out to the public, I'm sure you've seen the clips, Conrad, where they go out outside of the Naval Cathedral after the liturgy, they kiss all the icons and then they, they, they start hugging people. There's women bringing their kids to them. They're taking photos, selfies. And one of the women says, well, what about, what about the quarantine? 
right? Because everyone had to um, essentially solidify this quarantine around Putin before meeting him prior to, I mean, since the beginning of COVID, even journalists needed to enter into a one-week quarantine, I believe it was minimum, before even receiving an interview with Putin or getting to see him in person. So they had a very tight schedule, no diseases getting to the president, his safety was paramount. And at this point, Putin just says openly, just says, oh, don't worry about the quarantine, the people are more important. As as the local, you know, the, the archpriest from the cathedral standing right next to him. It's just a very strong image, very anti-Covidian, you could say. And I think we're very glad that entire era is over. Yeah, I think you should probably just nix that whole policy in general. I mean, I understand it could be kind of used as a flex on people and a way to, you know, he's a bit of a, if anyone's in danger, I guess he would be, but it's, you know, come on, man. You know, I think the, the meme virus is over. But that being said, I mean, you talk about, Prigozhin and the results of Wagner and Belarus and everything. And look, Prigozhin, he's just flying back to St. Petersburg whenever he wants. I mean, he's been pictured with representatives from the Central African Republic, which we know Wagner is, you know, deeply embedded with the current government there. And that leads us right into kind of our other main thing we need to talk about, which is the coup in Niger. And at this point, Russia and its proxies have basically, you know, taken over all of the Sahel region, you know, from Sudan all the way over to Mali, Burkina Faso, now Niger. Central African Republic had already happened, of course, with the now the only country remaining in that region under French somewhat influence is Chad. And we already know that Wagner is making inroads there. So I know, I mean, Niger, Chad, I mean, it's I don't think I need to make any of these jokes on the show for the people. People in the comments can do that for themselves. But I think the um, France's number one source of uranium has fallen. Their government has fallen. That comes after, of course, Burkina Faso. And more and more likely, Mali, of course, already one of the biggest countries that the French-influenced government fell and pro-Russian forces took over. And now once Chad, you need to uh, realize that once Chad goes, then that's that's basically a clean sweep for Russia and its Wagner kind of wing of its you know, pseudo-military overseas having completely wiped out French influence in this region. And this, of course, comes as this huge African summit is being held in Russia where Putin's forgiving billions of dollars of debt, pledging free grain to countries like Burkina Faso, Central African Republic, Eritrea, these countries that are allied with Russia. He's meeting with the heads of Ethiopia, you know, he's even, I think, mediating some conflicts that are going on in in Africa. Like I said, there are ongoing conflicts between Eritrea, Ethiopia, and this coup in Niger, again, uh, the, these coups in these countries kind of all go down the same way in the sense that some force that has weapons, whether it's like the president's guard or an aspect of the military or some police force ends up you know, detaining the president or detaining somebody, and then everyone waits for an announcement on the TV. And so much, was, so much buzz was going on before the TV announcement, and all the French outlets were desperately saying that, no, President Bazoum is still in power all of this is fine. There's no coup. The military is on the side of the president. The protesters in the street are anti-push, anti-coup. And next thing you know, we're seeing protesters in the streets all waving Russian flags, climbing on top of the sites in the center of the cities in Niger. And of course, the TV announcement comes on and it's military forces announcing that the president has been arrested. Uh, Prigozhin congratulates Niger on its successful coup. And basically, every, in even France, despite denouncing the government and saying they still recognize the old president, they've written out any kind of intervention. All they're going to do is sanctions. So once again, total Wagner victory. It seems that they're going to get the clean sweep. We're going to just keep watching Chad, of course. But, I mean, this is World War now. This is, you know, what we're talking about. I think we can safely say that between Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, 
the Caucasus region, Turkey and Syria as well, and now, of course, the Sahel region of Africa. You can even kind of tie in Ethiopia and a lot of the Horn of Africa into this as well. I mean, it's fully into World War III. I mean, this is this is multiple fronts, proxies, you know, everyone. You can line up every group in these conflicts with kind of a side in some capacity in the current ongoing conflict in Ukraine. So I think we can safely say that it's real. Yeah, and I guess a big positive for Russia, at least in terms of foreign policy, whether it's a positive for the African countries or for the West, is still to be determined. Definitely not for the West, because Wagner Group has come up as this uh, essentially authoritarian boogeyman for Western countries, almost on, on, on their perspective, an almost Al-Qaeda-like organization that causes so much distress to their influence and essentially their position in African countries. Like we, we brought up, remember, with Jim Jatras, um, a few weeks ago, actually, the potential of, and then this is a real fear that Western countries have of Wagner actually becoming involved similar in a similar capacity to Ukraine, where you know, Wagner sends in operatives. They are African, actually, operatives, you know, because they have actually trained African militiamen and mercenaries and sending them into Western Europe in order to cause disruption. I keep seeing this story actually come up, and now we're seeing Niger, of course, fall to fall to a coup, and it's still kind of unclear exactly. And Niger, mind you, is a very it's a French-speaking country. Besides all the various African dialects, their primary language is, is simply Arabic and French. So we can see a complete, you know, a complete full picture here. France at the moment is still burning up in riots. They are calming, calming down to some extent, but there is that fear of, well, these African uh, Middle Eastern immigrants, where are they coming from? And they're coming from Niger, Nigeria, Morocco, Algeria, the Northern African continent, essentially. And France has this internal problem now, you know, the, the the as you can see from the west disruption in this particular sub-saharan region especially in the french-speaking countries is already a huge blow to french capacity to hold everything under control which macron was doing quite well i mean since i would say even the previous french president since the bombing of libya it's been uh fairly uh fairly stable the stability was quite strongly in france's favor and if you recall, just a few months ago, we spoke about the coup in Sudan, and that, not the coup, but there was a potential coup with the militia fighting against the, 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 the I guess, the primary PMC slash militia type organization, similar to Wagner, was, I guess, uh, you know, set up against the national military of the country in Sudan. And that war and that civil war, that civil conflict is still ongoing. It's very, it's not as hot as what we see in Ukraine, but people are still dying on the ground, so there's still calamity. The country is still un really unstable. Nobody's, no international investors are putting in putting money into Sudan. It's simply too unsafe. So the main downside, I think, for local businesses, local, um, the, the local economy, I would say, in in, ter in terms of these coups and militias and uprisings, is politically speaking, yes, they do achieve certain goals, which perhaps they couldn't have achieved based on these electronic and paper-based fake elections. But uh, in terms of if they want to obtain international financial support and even investments from countries like China, China will be a bit more less hesitant, you know, to throw in investments into countries where there are literal military coups going on. So there is that gamble. It's like, well, if you're going to have a military coup, you have to do it very swiftly. The power needs to be taken over quickly. And of course, the West, notice how the democratic, the democratically elected president of Niger instantly, of course, cried out to Western powers to save me, save me. And all these crowds come up in the streets, these pro-democratic liberal crowds who are pro-LGBT and they want Niger to be a modern country. And where were these people last year or even during COVID or years ago, right? We didn't see this movement. It's almost like terrorist cells within the nation itself. This We keep mentioning the fifth column, but almost every country has its own CIA set up of the fifth column whenever there's unrest or something 
anti-democratic occurs, these cells could be activated and used against the uh, you know the powers that are you know positioned against the the, the new world order, the EU, the US, etc. We saw this in Ukraine, we saw this in Belarus, and of course in African countries as well. And frankly, I mean. <laughs> Progoshin's comments, what can be said about that? It's it's a dark comedy considering everybody was stating that he was almost uh, about to procure a coup, uh, a coup in Moscow and to take out Putin, take out Gerasimov and Shoigu, but that never took place. And so it's it's a little bit it's a little bit funny that I mean he understands the humor. This guy is literally the modern Joker, or at least the closest character we have to a Joker, and it's almost like a Batman villain. So some of his jokes are somewhat amusing. I think it's important to keep an eye out exactly on Wagner's presence in Niger, which today has been somewhat minimal. Minimal, but again, if a new, you know, if the Niger, if 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 Niger elects a new government which is more pro-Russian, perhaps they'll have a Wagner bodyguard, which is similar to the Central African Republic. I mean, we do need to keep that in mind. These are these are really uh, high in the potential list, and of course, we know that Wagner will not be bought off by American uh, organizations, by liberal NGOs, and other things. So, there is some stability in that for the African nations. You know, Prigozhin, he's I guess just not facing any consequences for the attempted coup, and is just congratulating other countries on coups where he coups where he plays a hand. I mean, I think it's understood that the forces that took over from the former president. I believe they had some training from Wagner affiliates and whatnot. It may have been in some of the bordering countries as well. But in general, again, this is like Mali, all the Burkina Faso. I mean, the head of the junta in Burkina Faso that's pro-Russian is in Russia, making all these anti-French, anti-colonial statements, and Putin's, you know, applauding them clearly. You know, between this and all the Lukashenko stuff, he's very much kind of on the rhetorical offensive as of right now. I think he sees that... Maybe they're on their back. The U.S. is on its back foot a little bit, and things are are only going to ramp up as the election uh, kind of increases in everybody's in the public consciousness and in everybody's mind. But that kind of brings us to the whole France thing. And again, France has lost so much influence in Africa. It comes right after the huge riots and everything. And the thing is that the fallout of that is still going on. What we've seen basically in the past few days is the police in France basically stage a successful coup against, you know, the anti-police forces in the government and effectively secure total immunity, not like from the law, but they've just, they kind of are, they're kind of are held to a different standard of the law, basically. I mean, they, they have like all this functional protection. They have total anonymity whenever they're accused of any kind of misdeeds now, uh, supposedly like specialized magistrates and almost like particular police courts for police accused of wrongdoing or anything. So Basically, what happened was Darmanin, the interior minister of France, went at all these meetings with the heads of the police unions, the heads of these police departments, and he ended up making a statement, I think, within frame, the two most right-wing police force unions in France, and basically caved to all of their demands. So national rallies congratulating them. So as far as this, again, it's not, I'm, ne I'm not necessarily just cheering on a new police state coming in, but for better or for worse, it, the police institutions in France are more right-wing, so... This is a institutional victory for, you know, order and and the right wing in France. We'll see how, you know, we'll see how it's used against, you know, maybe future more populist protests. But in general, Macron apparently, you know, gave the whistle to totally cave to the police. So it shows that the police have very much been in power in France. Yeah, I think uh, people, I think a lot of the listeners also still have a really bad taste in their mouth from the, any mention of 
police being granted more power than they're actually due uh, legislatively and through procedures and policies. I mean, considering what occurred during the last three years in during the COVID tyranny. And so uh, whether or not these French police officers will actually establish order and put the um, migrants to rest will be, uh, you know, kind of calm them down, essentially, will will be the determining factor of whether or not they're a positive, a net positive for France, or if this is another Masonic way of actually controlling the situation from the top, essentially controlling the police chiefs, maybe uh, giving it a more BLM-like appeal, which doesn't seem to be the case here. It's not like uh, we won't see any police officers standing on their knees praying for, uh, you know, praying for peace. It'll be, they'll be out there doing what they're being paid for and it's, you know, protecting the the citizens and, you know, essentially enforcing the law, which is kind of what I think France really needs right now and in terms of stability and speaking to a few people living in France right now, there is this, uh, this air of unease, especially a lot of Orthodox communities in France and even the future, potentially the future, um, heir to the, um, you know, there's a lot of Romanovs and a lot of really, uh, really high class Russian nobility living in France right now. And, the news coming out of the Russian diaspora in France is pretty bad. I mean, they're just—they're not liking the protests. They don't—they're quite. Um, it's not even racism, but they are very wary of the Muslim population. And I think, given the crackdowns in Moscow as well, they also may be inspired by what's happening in France. So there may be—that's—that's that's kind of one of the net positives, right? Regardless of what occurs in France, is that Russia is copying this particular model of okay, well. You see the police are cracking down in France on these protesters. That means we can do the same on the illegal Tajiks and uh, Kyrgyzstanis, you know, these illegal migrants living on the outskirts of Moscow in these cr- uh, crammed apartments and working for below minimum wage, essentially even worse conditions than some illegal uh, Mexicans are working in the US. Really bad conditions. That, and of course, uh, high high disparity in terms of uh, illegal prostitution, drug drug trafficking, uh, trafficking, all these issues are associated with this, including, I mean, I'm not going to go into too deep into this particular subject, but because it has been ongoing, but the Russians have been cracking down on all these illegal immigrant dens, and most of them are Muslims, so there has been mosque raids, and the Muslims in Russia have responded with a small, more or less localized riots with a maximum of 200 people per suburb, of course, rioting against the police. But again, it's nothing to the scale of what we see in France. And this ties into other big debates in Russia occurring right now. For example, the, uh, the Minister of Health in Russia has proposed banning abortion clinics locally, private abortion clinics, which since about 10 years ago have stopped providing their abortion statistics to the Russian government. Well, you know, they're not really, you know, they just stopped. And so essentially we didn't have a clear picture of where abortion rates were were going in Russia. Were they decreasing? Were they increasing? And recent outcry against this has, of course, improved. But one of the arguments, I guess, even against abortion or even pro-abortion, no, this is a pro-abortion argument, which legitimately arises in Russia. I know it's horrible speaking that, you know, a lot of our listeners are Christian and I myself am very pro-life. I've been to many pro-life protests in my, in my time and, you know, actively been, you know, pushing these sort of policies on the ground. But you have to consider the fact that in Russia in particular, most of the rapes occur and most of the sexual assaults are done by these illegal migrants who are in majority men. For every 20 men arriving in Russia from Tajikistan, from Central Asia, from, from the Middle East, there are, there was roughly one woman Okay, so, um, and of course, these statistics are not released by the FSB, by the uh, Minister Ministry of Internal Affairs of Russia, which controls the police force. We don't get these FBI type statistics. And you have to consider that, you know, there, there is that consideration that all these migrants will let in. And of course, the, the rates of sexual assault, they're highly, the disparity between who exactly is causing the assaults is very, 
is uh, very evident, I think, to the local Moscow populace, especially of the large Russian cities, especially Moscow, St. Petersburg. It's very clear who's causing all the sexual assaults. Who and you know, if if the you know, we, we don't have to go into the abortion debate, but there is that consideration there. The the Russian government, of course, attempts to ban abortion now, which they've kept legal for thirty years after the Yeltsin government took over, and of course, twenty four years of Vladimir Putin's United Russia government with Shoigu, and. What we see today is they've also allowed all these illegal immigrants who are raping everybody on the outskirts. A lot of uh, Russian women, of course, the, the rape rates are not as high as what we see in Western Europe, but still uh, high to the point of, you know, people actually being concerned. And, you know, there is, there is this consideration there that none of these policies, including the anti-abortion policy, are being done to benefit uh, to benefit everybody, anybody. It's essentially just the considerable amount to get, uh, you know, a, a, of course, a good, a net good for Russia. Russia needs to ban abortion finally after 30 odd years, even 100 years since the Bolshevik revolution. But there is also the, the alongside abortion, illegal immigration needs to be controlled. And also these migrants need to be put to rest and not allowed to riot as they are in France and also cause all, this, uh, all these uh, criminal disparities, I guess, shall we say which are still occurring in Moscow. Huge concern, not just for myself, my relatives, people, if you have loved ones living in Moscow, especially on the outskirts, it's a real fear, right? It's not just the clips we see on TikTok and Telegram and YouTube. These are, these are real concerns for Moscovites and you know, citizens of the Third Rome. So it's just uh, the reality on the ground. It's not just France, which is affected by these modern issues. France, as the police thing goes on, I think it's interesting because it's almost indisputable that a right-wing government is going to come to power in France, most likely in the next presidential elections. I mean, they're, the right-wing parties are now dominant in the parliament and everything, and with the police now empowered in many ways. Again, part of gaining power in these institutions is hard, because, you know, maybe a right-wing party gets elected, but then the whole judiciary, all these institutions, the unions, everything are against them, so they can't really get anything done. But now the police, which, again, the main police unions are, are pretty right-wing, they have now gained this institutional level of power. So maybe if a right-wing government takes power in France, they'd be able to really cement themselves in power, as it were, and not just immediately get crushed due to international left-wing, you know, uh, Zionist pressure. We'll see how all of that goes. But, I mean, that kind of leads us into the whole Israel thing, which is undergoing its own, you know, revolution and from, you know, their perceived, you know, nationalist religious party. You know, Likud is you know, led by Benjamin Netanyahu, who's taking trying to take a lot of power. They're basically trying to give the Knesset full authority over the Supreme Court, where, you know, up until now, the Supreme Court was, you know, the appointments are for life and they appoint their replacement and everything. But again, there's no constitution in Israel. And this is basically the sort of thing that if, if it goes through, Netanyahu will be able to, he's, he'd been in power for so long and it took this massive coalition of basically everybody uniting on people that agreed, disagreed on everything, uniting just to be against Netanyahu, that didn't last very long. He's back in power. Now he's basically trying to make sure that what happened that time is never going to be able to happen again. And again, I don't really have any problem with this method of, pol of you know, politics from a right-wing perspective, especially in, you know, Christian European countries. But, you know, Net regardless of who's in power in Israel, we know how they, you know, treat us, our Western countries and how they influence our politics negatively. And specifically, Likud, you know, the religious ultra-Zionist party, their, I mean, their explicit goal is effectively to restore greater Israel, rebuild the Third Temple, and seat their Moshiach Antichrist on the throne in Jerusalem. So, insofar as I can maybe sympathize with people from a nationalist perspective in some capacity, I, I can't go along, I can't just support that because it's the right-wing equivalent going on in Israel. That's, uh, 
I, I, I don't think, and I, and we'll, the whole Donald Trump question is raised. We'll see how much Trump remembers the fact that Netanyahu congratulated Biden very early when the election was stolen from him. I hope he doesn't just, you know, crawl back to Netanyahu. That'll kind of, that'll answer, that'll really put to rest a few of the questions that people have if that does happen. But the protests are big. All the liberals, all the secular Jews in Israel are not happy. But as we know, the birth rates, I mean, within 50 years, the majority of Israel is going to be these Haredi, you know, religious Orthodox Jews that are outbreeding the secular ones. And this is going to have a dramatic effect on the foreign policy in the region, considering that all the Muslim countries have really already turned against Israel in a major way. I think only Jordan is kind of still maintaining its status quo on that. And if they're going to go the full religious ultra-Zionist path, that's just, that's going to lead to some conflicts very, very fast. Yeah, I think Israel is a very curious country because for listeners who aren't aware, Israel is probably one of the more functional democracies in the Middle East, actually has a more or less proper separation of powers between the parliament, the executive branch, which is the cabinet, the president of, of you know, the prime minister of Israel, essentially, and the uh, and the judiciary branch, which, of course, is the judicial branch of the Supreme Court and the High Court of Israel, of course, being uh, kind of thrown into thrown into the debate at the moment so and the you know the knesset which is their version of the parliament and the duma is is very much divided it's not it doesn't have these two strong oppositionary parties similar to the united states we have the democrats and the republicans and it's even uh, i guess it's even more separate and it even has more variety than say even the russian duma and obviously unlike the russian duma where united russia controls definitely more than you know two-thirds of all the seats and has the ability to actually alter the constitution at will the power of the knesset of course is a lot more disparate and separated which you know israel you could say is a functional democracy in the middle east and you know, their population being so homogenous and of course united around this idea of national solidarity of course population being below 10 million and also surrounded by by enemies for decades has increased this i guess national i you know even though israel no notice israel is the capital of L, of the lgbtq and the alphabet community right in the middle east itself as well so they, they have these strange you could say degenerate trends which you know ultimately are bad for culture but their birth rates are still quite high which is impressive it means that and and abortion is legal too so all this means is that uh, especially essentially the national idea of israel the culture built around i guess just the 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 national solidarity the belief in that that israel is something special that it's worth living for it's worth having children for is such it's so powerful it actually overrides degenerate cultural trends and even anti anti-state policies such as abortion and it's kind of in a way an inspirational example uh, you know, it does show that. Well, it really just, mm -hmm. well, it just secures the future for the ultra-religious mm -hmm. Jews because all the secular Jews get all the abortions and do all the gay stuff, and then the the ones that are against abortion or against that have a million kids in this you know ethno state that encourages all of that. And so then you know, you could say that I mean some people say that similar things are going to happen in America as the Amish and other very religious groups have all the children and secularists you know basically fail to do that. You could say the same thing in Russia. You know, Russian, there are many families in the Orthodox, the, the active families in the Orthodox Church tend to have four, five, six, you know, up to 10, 12 children in Russia, as opposed to, you know, when people think of the low birth rates in Moscow, you can think of any number of, you know, cosmopolitan Muscovites or, member, you know, residents of St. Petersburg or, or Rostov-on-Don somewhere. But when you, when you go into the churches themselves, I'm sure the average, I mean, I don't even have to be sure. I've, I've, I've read some things in the past that the average you know, number of children is much higher, of course, and that's going to be be found anywhere, which again, 
that's a bit of a white pill on the demographic collapse in some of these places is that it sure you may undergo some economic unfortunate times because of the you know because of the loss of the equivalent population but statistically the people that will be replacing the old population will be the more religious and conservative just based on you know basic birth rate numbers and who has the most children but with Israel and Likud being kind of the focus I want to highlight this tweet from an Israeli a famous researcher and high-level kind of Likud member, Eddie Cohen, who tweeted out about the fires in Greece and Italy that, believe it or not, the Romans and Greeks destroyed and burned the first and second temples, and in memory of their destruction today, Italy and Greece are burning. So I don't know what the implication is there. We know that these fires are caused by arsonists. We've seen videos of that in Greece and Italy. So I don't know if this guy's just admitting that Likud agents or Mossad lit these countries on fire, but I just think it's very uh, interesting and in a way kind of embarrassing for the Jewish people that these they still cope and seethe about these about these old you know these old you know these old owns that they get that they took and uh, and now we have to hear about how they're happy that you know country beautiful countryside is being burned on the Mediterranean. But when it comes to the Greek issue, Dimitri, unless you have anything else you want to say about Israel. The uh, the big thing is how the Greeks are not, except they're not asking the Russians for aid because we know that the Russians have the most relevant firefighting planes in kind of the region, and they're even in Turkey right now fighting fires. But it seems that due to the whole Ukraine thing and NATO membership and just general kind of globalist attitude, the Mitsotakis government and Greeks in general are not a lot of you know Greek politicians are of no interest in asking Russia for that assistance and I've seen a video of a group of Greek nationalists making a whole video saying that the country is burning you know we need to accept that we were wrong you know we need to ask Russia for help and we need to stop supporting Ukraine and this degenerate Western nonsense which I think that's the right attitude to have it's not to say that there aren't fires in Greece every year but these ones are getting particularly fierce even blowing up some of the, because again, Greece had really remilitarized their islands in the face of Turkish encroachment. So there's a lot of new ammo depots, you know, uh, even posted equipment and whatnot on some of these places. And now they're getting engulfed in these fires and ammo's going off. And it seems that, again, like I can't imagine that, you know, in the face of certain military conflicts like this and, you know, these crazy weather conditions we're facing these days, that Greece talking about legalizing gay marriage and then not asking Russia for help and supporting Ukraine. I mean, that's not a recipe for success in these fields. No, I, th I think it's, it's it's a great point in relation to Russia because we do remember prior to COVID, the the great fires that took place not just the not just in countries around the world like in Russia and um, of course the ones that took place in Australia as well were a big deal. But the Russian wildfires, which burnt out, I believe it was somewhere between it was in the millions of hectares and. Yeah, just checking up here exactly how many, two almost three million hectares of forests were burnt out in 2019 prior to COVID in in the middle of 2019 in Siberia. So those huge wildfires, of course, set the Russian standard for firefighting to such a high. To I mean, not just firefighting, but also rescue and emergency MCHS forces, which Shoigu used to run, by the way. So there's that Shoigu reference again, the the two vans savior of mankind in Russia, but. Uh, you know the this this particular theme of Russia essentially uh, responding to emergencies has been has been part and parcel like what we've seen around 20, 2023, not just assisting African countries but also uh, you know, providing assistance to Turkey to Syria during the earthquakes and of course the assistance being open to Greece of course Russia would wouldn't of course 
you know, assist Greece because Greece, even even though Greece is NATO and EU and has provided aid to Ukraine, it really hasn't given that much. Greece does not have that much to give. So I think Russians in general, the Russian people would forgive Greece, whether or not the Kremlin would, I guess that would be open to open to dispute. But look, the Kremlin just forgave $23 billion worth of debt to African countries. So I'm sure they would have provided Greece uh, some of these perks, considering the, just the amount of uh, pilgrimages and the um, transactions, I mean, just in, in terms of human movement that occurs between Russia and Greece, of Russians going to, to Greece um, on holidays during the summer, as well as uh, on pilgrimages. And of course, Greeks uh, visiting Russia, or, you know, they used to visit a lot more prior to uh, 2018 and uh, 2022. So that also needs to be taken into consider consideration. But yeah, the former Minister of Defense of Greece, openly pretty much stated that Greece does need Russian helicopters and firefighting technology to put out these fires. Like the former Minister of Defense kind of, you know, put down his, uh, took off his hat of staunch Greek, Greek nationalism and said that, look, yeah, we just have to admit that perhaps we were wrong in some of our foreign political aspirations to be this very strong integral part of NATO. Sometimes we have to reach out to Russia for support. And I think that's completely right. Russia should, uh, but you know, then, then again, the Russian nationalist argument comes up, well, should Russia actually help Greece, you know, based on its recent rhetoric and, you know, anti-Russian statements and also the, uh, the pressure against, you know, the, the Russian Orthodox Church as well. Uh, and, and again, uh, I think it's, you do have to, a, a little bit of Christian sympathy goes a long way. You know, there is that turn the other cheek aspect, and I think it does come out. It, it does need to come out in moments such as this, right? A bit of mercy, a bit of clemency, and uh, just clear thinking in regards to foreign policy. A, again, hopefully the fires will be put out, short, you know, shortly. Um, I'm not sure exactly uh, how much, what the potential um, escalation may be in Greece, like will will the EU really get heavily involved or uh, what, what exactly the effects will be. But again, as we know, natural disasters, we spoke about the Dagestan earthquakes, natural disasters are consequences of collective, uh, collective human sin. St. John of Kronstadt made that very clear in the early 1900s when he said earthquakes, uh, tsunamis, forest fires, things of this nature, tornadoes, they occur because you know, because human sin essentially taints the earth even more to the point of the earth actually violently reacting. Also, God providentially sending these calamities to humans in order to uh, have us recognize that, look, um, we, we don't live forever. You have to keep it, keep our mortality in mind and also turn to him for help as well as, um, you know, to, you know, it's similar to what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament. We spoke about this in the earlier World War Now episode. So there is that also to keep in mind that, well, huge wildfires and disasters happening in Greece. At the same time, there's this gigantic support for the schism and for uh, the Ukrainian issue. I'm not saying the two things are related, but for an orthodox mindset, yeah, they're inherently uh, somewhat connected, okay? Um, it's just the, the default position I think we have to stand on. And I'm not saying all Greek... All Greeks or schismatics or anything of the sort, and it's simply, uh, I think it's more a message to the leadership as well as the liberal pathway the country is on at the moment. And I, I agree that I think if Greece asked, Russia wouldn't hesitate to help them. I think even even in the Kremlin, there's an understanding that by no means does the average Greek person necessarily have any kind of weird animus towards Russia, even if they're sympathetic to Ukraine. It just they have a lot more complex of a relationship than that. Government aside, you know, the Greek government is just. Those are just puppets. They almost can't be related to the Greek people themselves. But I think it's important to realize that, in general, this whole... I mean, you talk about the fires. America has experienced some massive fires. People probably remember the, all the shots from New York, from San Francisco back in the day where the sky is orange. The same things happened in New York City with the fires from up in Canada. 
I lived in Idaho for a while. There were some massive fires turned the sky orange and whatnot, just, you know, a few, like 100 miles away from me and whatnot. So it's all around the world, you know, things are heating up. And now apparently, according to modern science, the theory about there's evidence that global warming is actually coming from the earth itself, from even like the hot supposed, you know, things under the crust of the earth. And I think that you know, if we think about biblical cosmology and what that could really mean, I think some repentance may be needed to cool the fires of hell, as as one might say, because that might be what's what's leading to this. We've seen even an increase in volcanic activity, in, especially since 1980, you know, in Mount St. Helens. And, and, and people always are talking about the possibility of, you know, Mount Hood, Yellowstone, Mount Rainier erupting, all these volcanoes. So, you know, volcano watch going on here at World War Now as well. But I think regarding you know some of these other countries and some of their uh, relations with Russia and their you know obviously China is a much cozier relationship with Russia than Greece but all these accusations are coming out of the the western media now that China is sending a lot of equipment to Russia more equipment than you would think they really are helping them and this ties into Shoigu being in North Korea where Dimitri I think you would agree he's probably securing some pretty large uh, ammunition deals yeah, pretty gigantic ammunition deals. I think North Koreans essentially their their warehouses, you know, due to the lack of war and essentially all their, I mean, seventy years since the, you know, they are celebrating the anniversary of the armistice or the end of the you know, the Korean War. So, and North Korea has been armed to the teeth for very long, so they do have these shells. And if, in terms of shells, like we do have to remember the amount of um, actual ammunition the Russian artillery goes through on a daily basis is so enormous. When Prigozhin and Wagner were sieging Bakhmut, Prigozhin stated at one point that. It took he he required eighty thousand shells a day in order to you know continue the bombardment of Bakhmut and, and to take it from the Ukrainians. I'm sorry, eighty thousand in a day. I mean these are enormous numbers. That's uh, how many in a month? Millions, right? So again, it's the, the numbers are absolutely staggering for the layperson. You know, not a military expert by any means, but. Uh, yes, absolutely, and not just not just arms and ammunition for the artillery that he can, he can secure, because I think that's exactly what's happening at the moment. The combat is very heavily based on uh, on the artillery aspect, but also potentially, and I mean this is somewhat in the air, but uh, North Korea does have a very functional army, and you know to secure even ten thousand North Korean uh, not not mercenaries, but actually official servicemen. Because we, you know, that's what what's what we're seeing. It is turning into an army of, you know, troops. Um, mobilizations are kind of occurring on the side, and the Russian mobilization was announced at the same time, perhaps. Uh, and China, you know, all these countries are accusing. You mentioned China, right? All these countries are accusing China of sending gear to Russia, including Kevlar, mostly uh, defensive gear. You know, people in twenty twenty two were accusing Kazakhstan of sending Russia um, and Uzbekistan sending Russia uh, military underwear for soldiers, right? So all these countries are accusing each other of assisting Russia in some small capacity. Nevertheless, what can Korea assist Russia with? Well, one, artillery munitions, and two, actual personnel. North Korean soldiers are very well trained. I would say even better than the Ukrainians and probably better than a lot of European countries. Uh, You know, that's probably one thing North Korea actually has is a really functional army. So could Shogu secure, uh, you know, he could make up for all his faults in recent years and even the beginning of the SMO if he secures a large contingent of North Korean troops in order to participate in Ukraine. I know it's a bit fanciful, but uh, just, yeah, I think, you know, who knows at this point. Any, I'm open to I'm open to any interpretations. After Wagner's move to Belarus and them talking about securing the Western Ukrainian territory from the Polish, I think I'm open to any sort of interpretation at this point. A true yellow dawn. But the... Uh... It's true that I mean North Korea. Obviously, I mean, what honestly, what confidence, what 
would what would be the change in their day-to-day life for sending some troops to Russia? They're already they've been sanctioned to hell for decades. So like it's probably a probably an easier consideration for them than other countries. That's not to say that it would be something they'd make lightly. But I mean, I think Shoigu even said that he considers the North Korean military the most powerful military in the world. So they clearly have an interest in maintaining cozy relations with North Korea and keeping that regime propped up. And North Korea has been launching all sorts of missiles and making all sorts of bellicose statements recently. But at the same token, we've seen North Korea and China getting cozier with Russia. The U.S., I think, has taken that in stride and has signed new arms deals with Taiwan as a clear. And they've even barred uh, pro-China Hong Kong leaders from attending some of these summits that they've been going to attend. So the U.S. is clearly pressing China. We're going to see how they respond. But again, I still have a hard time taking China seriously while the Keenan Islands remain under Taiwanese control when they're a stone's throw from the coast of mainland China. So we're going to keep all of that in everybody's sights. Obviously, China is still... We know China has an interest in seeing the Ukrainian conflict come to a close in a specific type of way. So I'm sure that if Russia is about to move with some kind of large mobilization or something with Lukashenko in Belarus, that the Chinese are also in the know on all of that. And we talked about that Russia is striking more and more into Odessa, being able to take more territory. I mean, it's not just Odessa. They struck Rainy, the port there, which is literally 200 meters from the border of Romania. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Dmitry, before we maybe talk a little bit about Strelkov. Well, I think it was the riskiest move, and it's precision, precision strikes, notice, and, you know, when we speak about the Transfiguration Cathedral, whether or not it was a Russian shell which hit it, the long-range missiles, you know, we talk about the Russian precision in order to strike it, strike the Ukrainian uh, targets and the, and the ports and the depots right alongside the Romanian NATO border. I mean, this is incredibly risky and very well calculated. Would Russian, can, can Russian missile strikes miss? Yeah, absolutely. But in this case, I think the confidence is at a sky-high level at this point. And they probably have marked out their targets long before, I would say even probably in late 2022. So they know exactly which targets to strike around the Odessa region. It's already been mapped out and well calculated. And it's, I mean, it's the closest we've had to Russia actually touching a NATO country since, do you recall, um, the Ukrainian anti-air missile, of course, hitting uh, and killing two Polish farmers, uh, which, you know, they tried to accuse Russia of doing with their... Uh, yeah, I mean that was the big drama in like late 2022, but and which almost caused you know people to consider a world war free because they thought Article Five would come into effect. But yeah, this was the closest we've seen to Russia actually firmly fr- firmly striking less than a kilometer away from NATO country. Um, and of course, uh, Romanian Orthodox country as well, incredibly stressed, but also a very firm member of NATO and very um somewhat anti-Russian due to the the U- USSR sort of the anti-USSR stance they've had. And the uh, you know the history there, of course, involved. So, uh, Romania is very heavily on the Ukrainian side, uh, namely. And you know the the Romanian ports, of course, are used for transportation of grain as well as to house whatever's left of the Ukrainian navy. Um, you know, which pretty much is nothing. But at this point, uh, Romania was used by the Nazi Germany as well. Their ports along the Black Sea coast in order to uh, attack what was uh, you know the insignificant Black Sea fleet of the Soviet Union during World War Two. So that Romania was always a big actor in the Black Sea coast, and it continues to do that. So the bombardment of this gigantic, of course, news. It's the the ports. The ports essentially would need to get a. Uh, need to be essentially carpet bombed in order for them to lose any sort of efficacious long-term uh long-term effect uh, because these ports remember just the 
it's it's similar to Azov style in Mariupol. So these these ports, there's a lot of steel, concrete. These, these structures were built for and to withstand essentially nuclear nuclear level destruction. These are old Soviet designs. They weren't built by modern Ukrainian hands. They were built by the you know the hands of the United Soviet Union, and they were funded by by the great superpower of today. Uh, these ports of Odessa won't simply get taken out by a few missile strikes from the Russian side, no matter how many times they're hit. So there is that consideration of these missile strikes. Are they actually achieving anything? And again, in terms of public relations and the effects on the church, the Transfiguration Cathedral getting hit by something or getting blown up from the inside. I'm not sure. I mean, the jury's kind of still out on this question. Like, was it blown up from the inside of an explosive plantation? Was it an anti-air missile that hit it, a Ukrainian anti-air missile? which uh, one of their defense systems essentially striking down the Russian missiles flying in from Russia, from the Russian side, from the Russian Black Sea fleet, striking, of course, the Ukrainian territory of Odessa, the city. And of course, the Ukrainian missile could accidentally veer off course and hit the cathedral. That, that's essentially what the Russian side is saying. Meanwhile, the the uh, Metropolitan of Odessa, this is the canonical member of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, 84-year-old Metropolitan Agathangel of Odessa, very prominent member of the Russian Orthodox Church in general, openly stated that the special military operation is a genocide against the Ukrainian people and that uh, the Russians actually hit the cathedral in Odessa. So he openly gave his opinion two days after the event and accused Russians of not just genocide, but also, but also striking at Orthodox targets, which uh, is probably one of the first... We've seen a lot of statements from hierarchs and clergymen before in regards to you know their anti-Russian positions in Ukraine, but this is the first time that Russia is actually accused of openly of a very, by a very senior hierarch of doing something um, egregious, and you know the effects will be uh, will be deeply felt. We just had our a for hour episode on Ukraine, the Ukraine Ukrainianization and the, the Union of Brest, essentially going deep into this idea of schism in the history of Ukraine. And I'm not saying that Mitropolitan Agathangel of Odessa potentially is trying to push towards a schism, but these sentiments that you know, sentiments that we have to move away from Russia based on some mistakes that Russia is doing, or even potential uh, strikes or political moves, is heavily ingrained in this idea that Ukraine needs to be independent and separated. Um, you know, we, we can see that in the statements of Metropolitan Onufri, which we can go into a bit later. Very anti-Russian, very pro-Zelensky, pro-Ukrainian government uh, open statement. So the bombardment of Odessa, again, what are the goals, right? Uh, it's hard to actually determine what Russia is trying to achieve because the notice, it's almost as if the pretext of the Kerch Bridge explosion was used in order to, the in order to facilitate these strikes on Odessa and to you know claim that this is just part of the anti-terrorist, the uh, sort of the anti-terrorist initiative that Russia has taken after the Kerch Bridge was um, bombed again by an underwater drone, which which we discussed last week. But it makes no no sense really because where is Odessa and where is Kerch and where is Crimea? It's kind of very far separated. So, what exactly is this? Pre is this more of a a strike against the grain deal in a way is it to the grain deal was cancelled at the same time uh so russia needs to in, in fact impact ukrainian exports of grain from odessa like it's not very clear exactly what the aim of these bombardments is is it a military is it simply just military strategy but then the the question arises why hasn't this been done for one and a half years prior to this if odessa holds such significance in the russian military eyes was it simply because of the grain deal was the grain deal the only thing holding uh, the Russian military and the Russian Navy and, you know, R Russia back from striking at Odessa. Again, very confusing. And 
we as laypersons don't necessarily know what's happening in the in the upper echelons of power and essentially how they're making these calculations but we are affected especially orthodox people on the ground those who you know were attending the cathedral are affected because well keep hearing this argument well well the ukrainian anti-air missile hit the cathedral well look the anti-air missile it was stationed in Odessa city in order to shoot down to shoot down russian long-range strikes so it, the missiles would not have been shooting in the first place if Odessa wasn't bombarded i'm not saying Odessa shouldn't have been targeted because again there's a war going on going on and Odessa is a very key city but that particular argument of an anti-air missile hitting the cathedral therefore ukrainians did it intentionally is a little bit far-fetched i don't think that was the case maybe it was maybe it is a big psyop again ukrainians are not beneath that we've seen that with the dam with nord stream etc or well, ukrainians are very much uh, very very exceptional at causing these terrorist attacks but this needs to be considered that uh, this is a war and the calamity caused will of course affect the orthodox people we're seeing that kind of live the svetogorsk lavra last year was bombarded by both the russian and the ukrainian sides a monk side on both sides but of course the monks solemnly held their neutrality and their more pro-russian views at the monastery regardless of any sort of atrocities that happened on the ground or even monks passing away and the i think one of the archimandrites was actually killed last year so thankfully not that many casualties at the moment but odessa is definitely a light yeah and the ports all along the black sea coast of ukraine completely unusable as far as the trying to even do anything is concerned russia's complete dominance over the northern black sea and that's that's really unfortunate to britain to turkey to basically everybody and this is breaking news as well apparently the port of alexandr alexandropoli in greece in northeastern greece will be available to the french army which is a move very much against turkey i only bring that up because turkey's we, we talked about strelkov who we're about to talk about a little bit more and his perspective that this is also moving again towards a russo-turkish conflict in the black sea is really going to be where that battlefield gets laid out and as russia striking all the way from you know the azov sea to in the past now to rainy in the full extent of the slavic you know romanian russian ukrainian russian claim on the black sea coast that they are and i think the interesting thing one needs to consider is that and this is almost a more scary reality not in a bad way per se but that at the end of the day russia never planned to push to odessa at the beginning of the special military operation for better or for worse you know i don't think that's a black pill to say at this point it just kind of is but what it says now that i think they're obviously considering that as well as pushing into kharkov and other places is that you know those of us who saw this going a certain way from the beginning like us that we had tapped into the the course of civilizational history that i could say is kind of above political history you know these are decisions being made up above the above just the political decisions made in capitals like dc and moscow and the fact that we've been tapped into that proves that it, it is all real and if that's and if this has really been like the this inevitable push has been to where russia is going to have to take all of this territory i think it's i think it really is only a matter of time before we see turkey enter the fray on the other side so be sure to keep that in your prayers dimitri if you have anything else to say about the the black sea coast in general i want to hear what uh it's not too big of an update, but we do have a bit of an update on Igor Girkin, Strelkov, and his status. I think we can probably just go into um, Strelkov's update. Essentially, you know, he does mention he has a health condition. Uh, he has to take certain tablets for his heart. And uh, I guess you, you did mention the fact that he, he does have the next hearing coming up in August, I believe. Yeah, he has the... I guess it's his kind of preliminary hearing to sort of, I guess in theory he could maybe be given house mm -hmm. arrest or something like that. I believe this is August 29th. 
perhaps maybe something will happen before August 29th, and then they'll just... I, I do believe that when September comes around, whatever happens, I mean, worst case scenario, they, I don't know, maybe they lock him up for like a year, but even then, like, I can't see anything worse than that really happening. I think I do think there's something to the timing of this, and we're going to be keeping up with that, because I don't... Th I mean, maybe something big happens, they push, they take a bunch of territory or something, and like, all right, we'll just let him go. Maybe he'll change his tune, maybe he'll be nicer to us on Telegram. I don't know if that's how anybody's thinking about it, but there's uh, it, it is just curious that they chose this random thing, and now they're holding him for this two-month period, and then they're going to be putting him on this. So we're watching it closely. We hope that he is all right. We're praying for him. But... Again, I, I hope that he... I, I don't think he's in any danger of facing some kind of assassination, thankfully, but... Uh... I, I think it's also noteworthy to consider the fact that, you know, just um, me and Conor were talking earlier just off stream about, well, how many people in Russia actually do support Strelkov on the ground just outside of social media? Because on social media, naturally, he has a huge following. Well, you have to consider since 2014, Strelkov has had not a single appearance on mainstream television. So he is very much like the Alex Jones of Russia. He had zero appearances on channel, on NTV, on Channel 1, on Russia 24. No appearances at all. The Russian the Russian government and the, uh, you know, the, the mainstream media in Russia gave him zero radio appearances. You know, I mean, actually, no, he was on the several radio channels, but not the mainstream ones. He was kind of always on the sidelines. So, and this is reflected in his court hearing. So we'll see the hearing coming up in August and September, exactly how many people will attend. But his courtroom was not full. So the actual uh, audience participating, the, his supporters were there, but it, the courtroom was not packed like we saw during the trials of Navalny or some of these other liberal oppositionary members in Russia, which is a bit concerning. It's almost as if, um, well, I mean, a lot of his supporters are probably right on the front lines because they'd be the most patriotic Russians, right, in terms of the male population. But nevertheless, the, a, lot, a vast majority of Russians simply don't know who Stilkov is, especially the boomers, those of, you know, those over the age of, say, 65 even 60 almost almost into retirement age which has been increased in russia recently but they wouldn't have any idea of who stilkov is or why they should support him and even about his monarchist orthodox positions which we speak about openly him being a stand-up layman in the orthodox church i think even a lot of priests and bishops would have no idea who stilkov was simply because well the Russian government hasn't given him the audience. He's not the type of guy they were promoting. And I know it sounds weird. It's like, why wouldn't they be promoting this orthodox, gigachad, um, monarchist type guy? Well, it's that just wasn't on the cards. You, I mean, it's easy to speak about degenerates like Navalny all the time and people like Prigozhin and the Wagner Battalion and the criminals and all these weird uh, shady characters. Why would you speak about a boring monarchist who loves Nicholas II, something like that? I mean, that's... That's a bit irrelevant, all about Svetogorsk Monastery and him, him venerating relics, things of that nature. So we hope Strelkov's hearings in the future will have more of a public attendance than anybody around Moscow. I think we would we would say definitely go to these trials, support Igor Strelkov, of course, in person. It's, you know, just it is your public duty. And, you know, these public hearings, uh, they are open to the public. So you simply just find out which courtroom he's in and simply attend, turn off your mobile phones, take off your hats. And just uh, sit there, and even if you have to say the Jesus prayer, pray for him, because he does need your support at this time. He's one of the most prominent Orthodox laymen in the world in terms of actually having an impact, right? Besides not being an, an official political figure in terms of not having any political power and office. So I think it's very noteworthy. We'll just keep following his case and trial as it goes along, and we'll kind of see where it all ends. I want to shout out the guys over at the War Report, Constantine and GSP. They had some high praise for our analysis, and they had some great analysis of the Strelkov situation as well. So check out their most recent episode. It's really good. But 
yeah, I mean, again, we gave you his analysis on the Turkey-Russia thing, and we very much agree on that. And I just don't want him to be in jail. I think his, for, even though he was, you know, kind of too black-pilled at certain points, I think his analysis is a lot more valuable than, you know, some of the people that all just regurgitate the same takes over and over again. You know, it's, it's we like to bring a new thing to the table. He was doing that. You know, that's the kind of analysis we like to keep up with. And you said that, you know, why isn't Russia supporting all of this? Well, look, Russia compared to the West, you know, you could say is based, but like, that doesn't mean that they're not, you know, very much, and their elites are very much pushing against like the true based, you know, actions that need to be taken. You know, yeah, it'd be great if you could, you know, if everyone was a monarchist and Zargrad TV was just as prominent as Channel One and all these other things. But at the end of the day, you, like you said, Strelkov is in jail and and it's really much easier for Putin to gain those kinds of points doing something like banning, you know, transsexualism like the Chinese have, which sure, that's great. But like, let's be honest, like how many transsexuals really are there in Russia? Like, let's be honest, like this is just something that's like, like you, it's, 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 some, it's just a t- an easy win, something that doesn't need to be uh, as in, you know, it's not as much of a real change as people may want to think. And I think that's kind of the situation in Russia. It's all kind of fractal and relative based on your starting point. And, you know, that being said, we've seen, like, part of the whole Africa thing is the fact that, you know, countries like Uganda and these other countries are very against the global homo LGBT stuff. And that's that combined with this debt forgiveness and, you know, their more cordial relations with China is really pushing them in the Russian sphere. So this is definitely a trend we're going to see more of in regards to that kind of stuff. And, you know, hopefully people like Strelkov are able to thrive in those, you know, more conservative, multipolar world and worlds and not be oppressed just because they happen to be slightly more to the right of the allowed, you know, based discourse. But, you know, I think, unless you have anything else to say about uh, all of that situation, I think we got to talk about the crazy UFO stuff going on in Congress where, you know, all these spooks, you know, I'm very skeptical of what they have to say are testifying under oath that they have, you know, secondhand evidence of non-human bodies recovered from non-human ships and all these sorts of things. Everyone's talking about Operation Blue Beam. And, you know, some. I'm not one of these people that says every news story is a distraction. People might say, this is a distraction from Ukraine's about to lose. This is a distraction from looking at a t- the 10,000th picture of Hunter Biden's penis. But I think, in general, this is something that, if you've been following any kind of orthodox circles online or following us, we had a big show on this, If like, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 episodes back, I don't remember. But... This is something that we keep up with. We're big fans of Father Sarah from Rose, Father Spirit on Bailey, what they've said about this stuff. And it's very obvious that the ideas from some intelligent source, maybe it's from, you know, maybe it really is being played out where the media doesn't take it too seriously because it would be suspicious. But for better or for worse, some intelligence entity is very interested in seeding the idea of extraterrestrial life and first contact and stuff like this in the eyes of not just the American people at this point, but the entire world based on, I mean, you know, English is just understandable all around the world. So this stuff is going to, this stuff is going to reverberate all across the world, not just the U.S. Yeah, I think before, um, before I go into my analysis of like Area 51, I want to give my analysis of the Kiev Picharsk Lava, two very important areas in the, in the, in the, in the world, you know, in terms of A for our own activity. The Kiev Picharsk Lava, of course, uh, held a meeting recently between uh, major hierarchs and Metropolitan Onufri was present 
and he gave a very pro-Ukrainian speech. Like this happened literally less than 24 hours ago. I don't think any Orthodox journalist sites actually commented on it simply because it was so striking. He said, we support the full sovereignty of Ukraine. It's an entire, in its entirety. So the entirety of Ukraine needs to be reunited, including Crimea. Metropolitan Onifri kind of put his foot down on that and said that we support the Russian, the Ukrainian army and the Ukrainian state and everything. And it's just like, okay, well, what about Metropolitan Paul? And what about the persecutions? What about, and he also said, I, I kid you not, I'm paraphrasing Metropolitan Onufri. And again, this is probably his position in order to gain, at least to ease the persecution somewhat, you know, trying to gain favor from the Zelensky regime. But we do see him saying that the occupied territories, which the Russians control, so Zaporozhye, Donetsk, Lugansk, Crimea, and Kherson, uh, this, they're having disruptions in terms of apparently diocesan control and administration. So he's saying that the church isn't functioning properly in those particular disparate zones, despite the fact that in Western Ukraine, some cities don't even have Orthodox churches open. So the persecution is so, I mean, you have churches raided being taken away. So it's almost like, I'm not sure where he's trying to go with this. And that combined with a Metropolitan Agathangel sta uh, you know, statement recently, it has been, um, it's just simply like a pretty strong, pretty strong statement, like about the, yeah, just the situation there. So yeah, that's right. This particular opinion of Metropolitan Onufri was, of course, criticized by Strelkov in the past. So he's one of the prominent people who has called out this essentially very pro-Ukrainian position of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, which could be justified in some extent. But the reason I'm going to bring up the story is because it will be developing in the next few weeks, uh, this staunch support by the UOC MP of the Ukrainian government will see exactly how or where this goes, especially as the Russian military operation, uh, the special military operation ramps up. And if we see a potential counteroffensive in autumn, how the church reacts to that, the Ukrainian church as well as the Russian church, which seems to be staunchly supporting uh, Putin and his um, his SMO project, uh, we'll see exactly where this goes. Church relations seem to be very much hinged on what happens on the ground in terms of military, unfortunately. But Nevertheless, the uh, the schism between the in Ukraine, of course, continues, and we pray for Metropolitan Onufri and his church in making the uh, the wisest decisions possible in this tough time. But again, uh, the the alien stories appearing in the U.S. it does uh, at least on on one hand seem like a huge distraction from you know essentially not just what's happening with Ukraine, but also to completely to erase any sort of memory of COVID, and we'll be focusing on an external enemy, an external threat as well as the potential psyop, you know, you have hippies and hipsters of all sorts, you know, those who essentially uh, want to somehow commune with these aliens and kind of communicate with them. And they go alien looking, it's almost like a new religion of sorts, right? We we have this massive religious uprising. And again, it's mostly based on this Joe Rogan-like culture that there's something out there, which, you know, the fact is there is something out there, it's called actual Christianity, which has been out there this entire time. And people just simply haven't been seeking it. But nevertheless, uh, and the US Congress, and it seems like the US elites are supporting this notion of releasing segments of information, whether or not it's real, but these stories about the extraterrestrial uh, encounters and, you know, uh, it is very confusing, I think, for a non-American audience, you know, especially those in Asia, those in Europe, essentially what the American, what the American people are seeing and viewing right now is, uh, yeah, it's kind of just up in the air, uh, essentially what will be the impacts of all these stories coming out and Tucker Carlson and all these major figures covering them.
Yeah, a lot of people are, you know, the fact that the media isn't covering it like a normal story is kind of, it gives more credence to it in a way that it's not just obviously a psyop to some people, but it's, again, some of these people have dubious, you know, origin stories, these people testifying, there's a lot of evidence that a lot of this still stems from Harry Reid, the former senator from Nevada who had a weird obsession with UFOs and aliens and everything, and again, it is true that the UFO sighting phenomenon is largely an American thing, it's like, a hundred times more likely to see any kind of UFO in America. All the sightings come from America. You can see kind of on like a heat map of, you know, density of sightings. It's really quite an American thing. And that's, you could say that has to do with the fact that the U.S. is testing experimental stuff, that there's maybe just more demons in the United States, you know, if you're coming from that perspective. But, you know, there's <laughs> there's a few different ways to skin that cat. But these days they're calling them UAPs, which I think is, you know, unidentified aerial phenomenon or some kind of other... Uh, I think there's a few different actually ways to under, do UAP, but it's uh, they're not saying UFO as much anymore. I'm sure that's intentional to not just immediately be associated with, you know, sci-fi films. But I, I think all of this is still fundamentally rooted in everyone's understanding of sci-fi movies and all sorts of incorrect understandings of cosmology and how the world works. But yeah, I mean, it's been a big week. I, I think we've, unless you have anything else to say, we can kind of wrap everything up again. Things coming around with... Belarus and with with Russia I think that's still like the biggest news and we're going to be watching that very closely I think actually one other thing before we end I saw India on a poll had based on its like perception of China has it hates China the most these days like their disdain for China had grown the most statistically since the last poll had been taken and of course we've talked about Arunachal Pradesh in the past and how again we just said North Korea Russia China they're all kind of uniting in the face of this Taiwan thing. And it seems that there's, and we're seeing all this other influence with these Christian persecution in India and this anti-Modi stuff that he's, you know, a Hindu nationalist and an extremist. So it seems that, you know, maybe the U S is going to activate India as its Trump card against China. But Dimitri, I want to hear your last comments on the state of the state of world war three right now, all over. I think the state of world war three, again, <laughs> well, the world, world war three will as a cold war is still ongoing and it's, you know, it's only heating up, so to speak. It's only getting warmer around here, but yeah, the, the U S has moved to ally itself with India. We've spoken about on previous episodes. It is very much to, in order to pit India against the U S I guess, economic rival China. And, and also may perhaps to cause a rift amongst the BRICS unofficial alliance, this e almost economic membership alliance of sorts, because BRICS seems to be one of the only things uniting India and China notice, and what do we have uh, occurring? I guess in late in late August, the biggest event coming up, which we'll be of course covering very intensely, is the uh, BRICS summit. And so, the US, the, the only thing that can really affect the BRICS summit in, in a way, it's not even the Middle Eastern countries like Iran, Saudi Arabia, which seem to be getting along quite fine now, surprisingly. It's that India, Ch in that India Chinese, these two key members of BRICS, the Indian and Chinese rivalry, which the US is going to agitate immensely now, right? So that's what people need to look out for and you know that's most likely in the news that'll be it'll be a big subject well but i think the the politicians in both these nations they actually understand that so it's all it's already being gamed out in a way like they know they know what they have to gain and what they have to lose and they simply won't fall for basic uh psyops that the u.s can probably force in somewhere in south america pitting countries and militias against one another and uh running all these various war games and interventions but yeah, so I don't think India and China are susceptible to that. But again, these two countries have their own civilizations, essentially. They're, they're both multiple thousands and hundreds of years old. So you have to, these two ancient countries essentially are 
are independent and they do have their own uh, you know, national gripes against one another. So regardless of how powerful the, the BRICS alliance is and how sturdy they, they keep the relations between the two, there is still, there's still a chance of you know, them essentially going at it in the future. I mean, it's not, it's not exactly off the table. So I do think in terms of international relations, the BRICS-Chinese relationship does need to be viewed. And it's probably the potentially the only thing that could throw the entire BRICS multipolarity project off the um, off the rails at this point. Yeah, we're going to be watching it very closely and we're going to be watching all the hot spots, like you said, like the Sahel region of Africa, the Caucasus with Azerbaijan and Armenia. We're going to watch Turkey and Greece, obviously Belarus's involvement in Russia and Ukraine. And this is, again, it's painting that picture. Things are things are heating up all over. I mean, there's almost no, again, North America is still remaining a bit untouched for now. I mean, we'll see how some things heat up in Central America as Bukele attempts to maybe unite all of these Central American countries. But yeah, I mean, that's, 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 that's about the show right there. I mean, we've kind of covered basically everything. Of course, in America, the Antiochian Archdiocese and Convention is going on. Patriarch John is here with newly, you know, elevated metropolitan Saba, the head of the Antiochians in America. So a lot of good things happening there. And like you said, big thing, we got to keep the church in Ukraine in our prayers, you know, despite some, you know, controversial statements coming out of both sides and tensions running hot. So we'll be sure to keep, if you want to see our take on the potential upcoming visit of Pope Francis to Moscow, we talk about that on episode 13 of Ether Hour, which everyone should, we'll have that linked below, everyone should tune into and subscribe for that. Uh, we talk about the Union of Brest and the Uniates in general, Joseph Atkunsevich and kind of the history of all that and how it, how it's reflected today. So yeah, be sure to check out the description. Dimitri, I'll leave you on some last words before we do the plugs. Yeah, I think everybody, um, you know, we are in this interesting period where the world does seem like it's it's getting really intense. We're hearing these bizarre stories about Russia potentially fighting Poland, about you know the pressures in the Middle East. Africa looks like it's a lie. Europe has riots, but do of course keep your own spirituality alight. You know, attend attend church, attend church every Sunday. You know, look into Orthodox Christianity if you aren't an Orthodox Christian thinker and uh, an attendant of church. Like if if you're not, if you haven't ever thought about Orthodox Christianity, it's a good time to actually look into it. Invest in yourself first and foremost. You know, invest in your own families. Look into Orthodox Christianity. Speak to your local Orthodox priest. It does go a long way, especially given all these bizarre and somewhat um, controversial news occurring around us right now. We don't know where exactly the world will be in a few years, or even your own local nation may be thrown into some sort of anarchy. Like as we've seen, you know, you don't know when the next major event or the major next major psyop will affect you. Just as COVID has. So while we have this freedom, I guess, in a lot of first world Western countries, we should exploit that and actually use this freedom to in a, invest in our knowledge of Christianity, you know, attend Orthodox Christian churches and just uh, promote, promote the sort of good righteous virtue. I think that's probably the main takeaway, especially given all the negative news we've seen around the world and just this, you know, essentially a push towards World War Three, like a big, big hot war around the world, which we've been seeing throughout the last three years, almost since the beginning of COVID. We've, um, it's just something uh, we need to keep in mind is that uh, you know, personal care needs to be taken, spiritually speaking. Yeah, that's a good way to leave it. So with all that, worldwarnow.substack.com. Be sure to check us out there for all our articles, all the episodes of Ether Hour, every episode of World War Now. Subscribe on YouTube, like the video. That really helps us out. Leave a comment. 
follow us on Twitter, World War Now underscore. Follow us on Telegram, World War Now Telly. Telegram's a great place to keep up with us for 24-7 news. We're always posting on there. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at GnomeRad. Follow Dimitri at OCanonist. Like I said, this week's Ether Hour, Union of Breasts. Be sure to check that out. Episode 12, still getting rave reviews about the land of Chud and Putin gnome theory. So don't miss that one. Uh, we really do appreciate those who have subscribed. It really helps us out a lot. And with all of that, uh, we'll see you next time. God bless.